1 through 13 today. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. A poor man dressed in dirty clothes comes in. If you look with, if you look with favor on the man wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here at the floor of my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonor that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire, entire law, yet fails in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as, though who will be, as those who will be judged by the freedom of law. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, as we dig into your scripture today, Father, I pray that you would just reveal yourself to us, reveal your glory in, in all that we do and what our actions are, Father. I pray that, Father, you would just change our hearts and change our minds and, and through that change our actions and what we do. Father, I pray that our behavior will be an overflow of your grace, Father, that, that you've given in us, that we would just change through your word. Father, we just praise you and we love you. In your heavenly name, amen. So as we read this, it's, very interesting stuff, right? We not to show favoritism. So let me. So discrimination in the church is horrible, right? Discrimination in the world is bad enough, but discrimination in the church is even worse. So as we read this, we gotta remember who who this was written to. This this book. We I think we forget that sometimes. This book was written to the early day Christians that had been scattered. By the uh, in the dispersion, as, pe- as there was persecution going on and there was fear, they were, the Christians were scattered around the world at that time, and so this is who it's mainly being written to. So it's so it's written to the Christians in the church about not discriminating in the church, and so how we deal with Christians, Christian brothers and sisters, is different than how we deal with people that are lost, right? Because as Christians, we come under God's grace and we are now under the new covenant of Jesus' blood. People who haven't been saved and haven't, haven't accepted Jesus' blood as their, as their salvation, they're still living like they're under the old covenant, right? Under the law, where the Ten Commandments still rule for them. Now, I think I'm going to have a coughing day again today. Sorry. So this is mainly written to Christians who are living under that new covenant, that new way of doing things versus living under the law because things have changed for them. So as we look inside the church and inside the Christian body of fellowship and believers, discrimination is horrible. And we see that, we may not see it in, in this church necessarily, but as a church as a whole, there are churches that I grew up in 
that there was definite discrimination that fit in this category. But there's other types of discrimination also. So how we look upon people, how we think and treat people is really for us to choose who's more valuable in God's presence is arrogance on our part. Sometimes we look down on people because they have too much money or they have too much of this or they dress a certain way. We look down upon them and we think bad thoughts about them. Or maybe we think how they worship, with how they choose to worship in our presence, we look down upon them instead of worrying about our own worship experience. So for us to choose what's more valuable in God's kingdom through our own lens is arrogance on our part. And I think we all get caught up in doing that at times where we think this is the way it has to be done. There's no other way. This is how we should dress and this is how we should act and this is what we should do, what kind of job we should have, what kind of car we should drive. There's arrogance in our part that we think we're better than other people in, by those actions. Um, our judgment upon brothers and sisters in Christ shouldn't be based on what value they bring to the church, whether it be uh, wealth and popularity that they can bring to us, but based on what biblical standards are. Or how are they, how closely aligned are what their actions are and their thoughts are with what God's word says, not versus what can they bring into the church to make us look better as a church body, right? It's so tempting at times when Somebody with a lot of notoriety and fame comes into the building, like they're going to drag pe bring people to church with them. So we want to treat them really good so they'll come back. But that's not what God wants. To treat somebody better than other people in the church building just because of their wealth or popularity or something they bring to the table that maybe not, that we think is more glorious than what God's love is, that's a sin. Um, and so we have to be very careful on how we treat people that come into the church building and how people that come into our fellowship as a Christian body. Right? How, how, how does it look for the world outside if we are discriminated against fellow believers in the church because of what they look like, what they have, what they don't have? Right? That doesn't look great. But yet we ignore some very unbiblical things that people are doing because they have plenty of wealth and money. So in, in the world, we, we seem to forgive people in the Christian world. We forgive people of some of their sins because they're more popular, they're more influential in aspects. And we say, well, they're okay, but life's just tough for them. And we don't hold them to the standards of what the Bible says because we're afraid they'll leave and they'll go do something else. And that can be a, a rough thing in our lives. Second thing I want to look at is uh, Mark 12, verses 41 through 44. Very popular passage, one we've probably all heard hundreds of times as we've grown up in church. It says, sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped the money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums, and a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I assure you, this poor woman had put in more than all those giving in the temple treasury. For they gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty and has put everything in she possessed, all she had to live on. So what we can see here is Jesus knows our heart. He knows what our true actions are. He knows what our heart beliefs are. So as he stood back and from the crowd and he watched people come up and bring their offerings to him, he saw there were people that were given large 
large sums of money and they were dropping it in and making a lot of noise and made themselves look good to the crowd. They, they, they let the crowd know that they were very wealthy and they had a lot to offer the people in that room. But then there was one little widow that came in and just dropped off two tiny coins that was really worthless compared to what everyone else was giving. It wasn't going to make a dent in the budget for the year. It wasn't even going to show up probably. But Jesus said she gave more than those men who gave a ton because she gave out of the surplus of her heart, not out of what the surplus of her money, but out of her heart. She gave out of the overflow of her heart, which is really what we're wanting to start doing as a Christian body. Is, is everything needs to come out of the overflow of God's love in our lives, out of our heart that God gives us. And people probably in the crowd looked at her and saw what she, other people probably saw what she gave and they saw her go up and give that little bit of money. And thought, well, that's all she's got. She's not worth much. She's just a poor widow that, that really can't offer us anything. However, look at those guys. Look how great they are. They give so much money to the situation. They, they're always there to give money to the cause. But their hearts weren't it. They were just giving because it made them look good. Sometimes we, we got to remember that people's hearts are different than what it looks like to us because we're not seeing what their feelings are, what their emotions are. So as they do something that may look meaningless to us, it's something God told them to do and just changed their hearts completely. So I remember a time as we were looking at going to seminary, as we, we had prayed about it and we had decided, we hadn't told anybody at this point yet, uh, other than the, we had told our pastor that morning. And uh, that night at church, a little old lady came up to us. She said, uh, Charles, I was sitting there trying to take my nap today and God told me to get up and, and go get a Walmart gift card to give to you. And so this, she was living, we were in Stroud at the time, so there was no Walmart nearby. She had to drive to Shawnee. So she got up from her nap and gave up her, her time to go honor God, to drive to Shawnee and then bring that card back to me. She had no clue that we were looking at making a trip that next week to go to New Orleans and didn't really have a whole lot of money to make that trip as we were trying to follow God. But that trip, that, that, guard, that card that God told her to go get was enough to pay gas money for us to make it there and back. And it was out of the overflow of her heart because she didn't have a whole lot of money. I, know, I knew who she was. I knew where she was financial and stuff. She didn't have a whole lot of money, but she was obedient to God in that moment. And so her obedience in giving the little that she had out of, her, out of what God called her to do meant a lot to us and our family. Not just that the money, the money was important, but more so the, the knowing that this is what God was truly calling us to do because he had confirmed it through another person who was obedient. And so as we, looked, as we went forward and we looked at the path, we were able, because of her act of obedience and her loving us through God's love, we were able to look back and say, you know, this is where God's calling us. He's, he showed us at this moment, this is what God wants to do. And so we can look back at those moments and remember those because of somebody else's obedience in those times. So it may have seemed like something small to, to many people around. It was a gift card. To us, it meant a whole lot more than that gift card. It was more than the financial value. It was the love that God showed us through that action. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we go through life is how do we discriminate in our lives? And for each of it's different. There's things that we struggle with. There's people that we look down upon. 
on things that aren't based on what God's Bible says about them. And it's not something that we automatically do. And it's not something that we necessarily want to do, but it's something that does happen in our lives and we have to be on constant guard for it, not to put discriminating factors in front of who we are. The world today is going through a lot of the struggle on what it means to discriminate against people. And I, and I think that as a world, we've kind of boiled it down to a racial thing, but discrimination happens more than just a racial thing. We can discriminate on people by age, by, this, by how their weight is, by what they look like, um, by shoe sizes. People pick on me all the time because I have big feet, right? Whether they drive a nice car or don't drive a nice car, which church in town they go to, you know, what job they have. Those are all different, different ideas that we can discriminate against people and hold that against them or hold them to a higher standard just because of something that God gave them. So we got to be very careful. We have to be on the watch of, in our own lives. How are we looking at people differently by something other than what God looks at them? As we move to James 2, 5 through 7. So it says, listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored that poor man. Don't, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced to you at your baptism? Interesting part there, the very first thing, God chooses the poor. He chooses the poor in faith and heirs to the kingdom. So who is, who is us for us to choose something other than that for them and to look down upon what God chose for their lives? He also chose the rich also in that, right? He chose people to be rich and there were some very godly rich people also. So I don't want, want to, in this time, I think that church was dealing with just looking at the poor and the downside. But I don't want to overlook that and say, well, we got to love all the poor, but we don't have to like the rich, right? Well, that's, not, that's not what he's trying to say here. God chooses those standings of where we're at, where we're at financially. God makes a choice on what we have and don't have. And so many Christians, we dishonor the poor with our words about them. As we see people maybe on the side of the road standing to hold a sign, what's our thoughts? You know, how do we, what's our attitudes towards them? And I, and I, and I, and I put the, the Christians and the poor in parentheses. Oh, put the Christians and the uh, poor in parentheses there because it's more than just those things, right? There are some people who call themselves Christians that really aren't. But the poor is not just poor. How do we react to people in general? How do we treat people that we think we're better than them? Right? Just be, so some people treat waiters and waitresses as if they're their personal servants at that moment. Right? If they don't do it right, we get mad at them. But we don't know what's going on in their lives. How is our actions towards them? How is what we're saying towards them? How is that uplifting to God? How are we serving God through our interactions with those people? 
people that may not be as wealthy as us? How do we, how do we look upon them? People that are struggling in life, how do we talk about them and lift them up to God? Those are things we have to ask ourselves as we go through life. How do we look upon people who are wealthy that are Christians? Or even not Christians? Do we treat them badly? Do we give bad thoughts about them? Do we say bad things about them? Do we treat them with a different attitude? We have to be very careful as we, in order to honor people by letting God do the honoring and loving them as though God loved, just as God loves them. So in order to do that, we need to humble ourselves at the throne of grace, which can be hard. Because we don't like to humble ourselves. We don't like to put ourselves down and lower than other people. We want to keep ourselves up in this higher attitude, so we have to repent for acting and thinking that we are higher than the other, other people around us. Philippians, Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Right? That's the lowest you could put yourself if you were choosing to put yourself back then, was to put yourself to death on a cross. Because that was reserved for not just the common criminal, but for the worst of the worst. That would be akin to us saying, I want to go freely to the gas chamber or to the um, electric chair. That's what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to humble myself. Now I'm going to put myself in the place of the worst of the worst. A place that only the most judged in the world would go. He said, I'm going to humble myself so that you guys may have Christ. So we have to continually take ourselves back to, back to that throne of grace where Jesus paid that price in order that we can continue to serve others through that. In verses 8 through 11, it says, Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as the transgressors. Yet whoever keeps the entire law, yet fails in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do, commit mur but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Okay. So to love our neighbor is not necessarily just enough. Right. We, must, we must not have favorites among our neighbors. We must love all of them equally with God's love. And that can be hard because some of us probably have a neighbor on one side of us that we may like a lot and we're good friends with, but the other side we have problems with. But God says to call, love them the exact same. Treat them the same. And so we have to treat our neighbors and our fellow brothers and Christians through biblical standards, through that biblical lens. Because he says favoritism is a sin in itself. To show, to show favor to one, one brother over another brother is a sin and it's wrong. As parents, we have to do the same. We have to be on guard for that with our children, right? How would it look if we favor one child over the other? 
wouldn't go well in the family, would it? The kids would figure it out. Just ask Joseph and his brothers when the, favorite, when the favoritism was shown out, right? What did that do to the family? So what does it do to our church if we have certain, family, certain families in it that are favorites compared to others? It can destroy a church just like it almost destroyed Joseph's family. And it would destroy our individual families if we were favoring one person over the rest of them. Favoritism is a sin no different than adultery or murder. That's challenging, isn't it? To think that if we show favoritism, it's no different than if we had murdered somebody. To show favoritism over, over other people is no different than being Hitler in some ways. As bad as we think he is, our sin is no different than his. And we all have to repent of it. Left to our own thoughts and actions, we are sinners and evil. Right? Left to just do what our nature wants us to do. We are all sinners and fully evil. Uh, however, through, mercy, through the mercy of God and through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be made righteous. But we have to continually go back to that throne of grace and continually repent and continually turn back to Christ to keep from our own thoughts and actions being in control. We need to have God's wisdom in all circumstances. As we've been learning in James 1.5, right? If we need wisdom, we go to God and ask for it. Don't search it. Search it out in the world for what the world would think you should do in a situation but continually go to God and ask him for that wisdom and he will show it to you. Then we get to James 2, 12 through 13. So speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So as Christians, we need to live like we are saved by grace. We need to live like we're not under the old law, the old covenant, but that we're saved by grace, that we are looking at what God's standard is, which is way tougher than following God's Ten Commandments, right? Jesus put our thoughts involved in it, what our heart response is, not just what our actions are. The Old Testament's law was all about doing the right things and having the right actions. Jesus said it's about what you're thinking that can lead to sin also. He said a man who hates his brother is committing murder. A man who thinks about another, another woman is committing adultery. Then you have to have the action, just the thought is a sin. So we have to continually try to repent of those thoughts that we have, of what our heart wants to do, and turn that back to God, and let our heart be changed. And we got to remember that as Christians, we are no longer slaves to sin. However, we freely put ourselves under the servanthood of Jesus and God. So we broke free from the sin of slave, the slavery of sin, only to freely put ourselves in God's service and let Him be the Lord of all. Which is really no different than 
being the slave of sin, except for we have a different master, and that's letting Jesus be our master and tell us what to do and when to do it. We don't want to break free from that 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 servitude. Necessarily, the old covenant laws, they're not as commanding to us now. There's more to it than, than just following Ten Commandments. It's because it's what our heart is saying, what our heart is telling us to do. We want our heart to follow God. We want to have that heart change through salvation. So as I thought about this, there was a passage in Romans that I want to read to you guys. It's a little bit long, but that's okay. I think it fits perfectly with what, what J- uh, James is saying here. So it's Romans 6, 1 through 23. It says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ's death, or into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father, so we too may, we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we had been joined with him in the likeness of his death, he will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is free from, from sin's claims, now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died, he died, one, he died to sin once for all. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God, and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of that one you obey? Either of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pat, from the heart the, that pattern of teachings you were transferred to, and have been liberated from sin. You have become enslaved to righteousness. I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to mortal impurity, and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now. Offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from allegiance to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now, since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I couldn't have said any better than what Paul was saying it there. I could try. 
There's two, two dynamics there. There is a slave to sin, which leads to death. And then there is freely choosing to be enslaved to righteousness, which leads to life. And we get to choose which way we offer our bodies up. We get to choose to offer ourselves to that slavery of sin or the slavery to righteousness. One produces death. The wages of sin is death. The other produces life, eternal life. And so each of us gets to make that choice each and every day. So as I said, James was written to the Christians. But we still have people here that may not be. There may be people who are still living under that slavery of sin. And so the question becomes today, are you still a slave to sin? Do you still offer your life up to those sinful old nature things and not to what God wants? Has God revealed to you that you're a sinner and that there's depths, the depth of your sin? The good news is there's hope. Christ freely gave his life so that you could choose to have life through him. He didn't have to do it. He could have said no. But he freely chose to say, I want you to be a part of my family. I want my father to adopt you to be my brother. I want you to be an heir along with me in God's kingdom. Not just a servant, but a brother. We think back to the uh, story of the prodigal son. The son came back to offer himself as a servant to his father. His father said, I don't want you as a servant. I want you to be my son. And he gave him his ring, which was saying, here's your, here's your royalty back. And that's what God wants to do with us. He doesn't want us just to be servants and just to be slaves for him. But he wants us to be his child. He wants, us to, wants to love us as he would his child. Or the more I think about the the greater that, that is to me in my life, that, that God wants me to be a brother with Christ. Christ still rules over us. He's still the top, top one. But he's not putting us as slaves in his kingdom. He wants us to be a part of the family. I was thinking, um, we've probably all seen the movie McClintock. And there's the, uh, the old cook. And when they want to retire him and and they offer him to become part of the family instead of just being a cook for him. And he's like, I don't want to do that. And then finally, they talked him into it. He goes, part of the family? Yes. <laughs> so then he got to sit at the table with them. He wasn't required to do the cooking and the cleaning and stuff. He was part of the family now instead of just being a servant. And there's a difference between a servant and being part of the family. Right? There's a different stature that we get to know in God's kingdom. We're not just a servant there. We're not just a worker but we're a son or a daughter of God. And Christ wants us, or God wants us to be that. At the very end of Romans 6, it says, for the wages of our sin, or the, the work, the, the, what we earn from doing sin, what that slavery earns us to sin is death. There's no fruit produced except for death in our life. But the gift of God is eternal life through him. So what we earn is death, but he wants to give us life. And he allows us this day to make that choice 
to choose life over death. He doesn't force it upon us. He could. But he wants people to love him by choice, with freedom. He wants us to come to him and say, make me your son. Make me your daughter. Let me come and do your will and be a part of your family. So if you haven't done it, today is the day to repent and to allow God to speak deep in your heart so that you can have not just a behavior change, but you can have a true heart change. And that things will change in your life, not because of your actions, but because your heart is changed towards God. I read an article on that the other day, dealing with some of that. The Miami Dolphins, they were talking about the, what they're going to do at the beginning of ballgames. And, one of the, and they decide they're going to stay in the locker room because they're tired of the political aspect of it. They're tired of, of what's going on. But one of the players said, we're tired of just seeing actions. But hearts are not being changed. We see people doing behaviors, but not in act, the hearts aren't being changed to people around. And if the heart would change in the church, then the overflow of God's love in our hearts will overflow. It can change the world. We as Christians have to get tired of just seeing behavior changes and what we say and do versus what does our heart really mean? Are we consistent? Are we consistently treating brothers and sisters in Christ like they're the child of the king? Or do we put some brothers and sisters down at a lower level because we're better than they are? If we can't get it right in the church, how can we expect the world to come join us and get it right in the world? Because that's kind of where we're at in our world right now is people are better than other people and that's, what the, that's the way they want to go with them. They're going to fight to keep what, that they're better than others. And until hearts change in the world, until hearts change in the church, in the family, and in our own personal lives, the world can't change. So that's part of on Wednesday nights, well, what we're praying for is hearts to change. And I think that truly can be a spark that changes the world. If we can come together in just total prayer, forget about all the other things in the world, and just focus on what God wants for us in our lives, for the church and for the people around the world. That can change the world through that. So as Miss Cindy comes up, we can do a quick review. So four things. Favoritism is a sin. We can all agree with that. Discrimination is a sin. We don't want to allow ourselves to go back to sin. And that seems common sense, but we still do that at times. We still allow ourselves to go back to that sinful nature. And then the last thing is, for Christians, God sets you free. Don't go back. God broke the changes of sin, the slavery of sin off of you. Don't choose freely to go back to that. Because that's not a lifestyle we want to live anymore. We don't want to be a part of that sinful life anymore. We want to be part of that godly life. We don't want to be the prince and the, the prince of the world and drop down and go live in the slums anymore. Because God gave us more than just to be sin to slavery. He wants to love us as his child. Let's allow him to do that.
Don't go back to those old way of life. Don't go back to the old law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you today. Father, we praise you for, for sending your Son that we can have life. Father, we praise you that you love us so much. Father, we know that, that you want so much good for our lives, Father. I pray that each of us will choose to let you do that in our lives, that we will choose to honor you with, with every breath that we have. Father, that we will realize that we are, we are nothing without you. That, that we are no, nobodies without you in our lives. I pray that today each of us will choose to make you our, our King, our Lord, and our Savior. That we can honor you. Father, we just praise you and we love you. In your heavenly name. Amen. If everybody will stand and turn to page 488. Just as I am now.